You're listening to PZ's Podcast, a guided tour of ancient truths and absurd tales for the modern pilgrim. PZ is space cruising at low altitudes most days through a galaxy of phantom planets of the mind, ever in search of an answer to his wound. Is he a space Parsifal bleeding under his suit but hopeful for journey's end? Buckle up and join him now as he blasts by Mars and Venus, rounding Luna in sure and certain hope of our childhood's end. You can reach PZ while he is on this quest at pzspodcast at gmail.com. Now, here's PZ. podcast is number 110 and is dedicated to Ray Ortland. And the um, title is from a 1969 rhythm and blues song by the Winstons entitled Color Him Father. You'll hear it at the end, so it'll refresh your memory. And in it, uh, it's a Vietnam War era single, and in it the singer is describing his mother, who was left after the death in the Vietnam War of his father, her husband, completely alone, and a good man came. She fell in love and married him and took in her seven children, including the singer, with his big wide grin. And he's such a lovely guy. He's such a great fellow that the singer says, Call him father. Color him love. Color him father. Color him love. It's a fabulous song. Any young man or man of any age listening to it will be bound to be affected, probably cry in the car. And it is a fabulous expression of the experience of a good father. Now, what brought the Winstons' terrific 1969 hit into my mind was the uh, thinking I've been doing recently, first about Stephen King and then about the roots of Stephen King's genre, or shall I say the roots of the genre in which Stephen King normally writes, which is the supernatural novel or supernatural short story. And what you find when you look at the history of this thing, and it's something that I studied all my life, and it's there's a very interesting and not always highlighted fact about literally every single one of the great 19th century and early 20th century protagonists of the supernatural story or novel, what is now often called, and I think really in a way, um, overly categorized as the weird tale. But whatever I think makes no difference. These writers were the great pioneers in the English-speaking world of the horror story or of the ghost story or of the gothic story. There are all sorts of ways you can categorize it. But I'm going to talk about fathers in relationship to this particular genre and what we learn about fathers and sons in particular from these writers. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about fathers and sons and you and me. 
because if you're a woman, this will relate too, because you may be married to a father, and you certainly have a father, and you may have a brother, because half the human race is the male child of a father. Now, it was actually <clears throat> Michael Moorcock, I've told you about him in the 90s, whose quote struck me as being so very um, important when he said that it is to the Protestant church that we owe the birth and formation of the supernatural horror story in English. And he was referring to the fact that, and I think you can actually say that probably 95% of the stories in English and in America prior to, let's say, the last 40 years were written by um, writers, male and female, who were uh, brought up in and imbibed in, often in reaction against and thoroughly and webbed in, whether they liked it or not, the dualism and the notions of good and evil, the categorization and discrimination of good and evil that was made characteristically by Protestant churches. And uh, Moorcock's statement, which came from an odd source, knowing his own history and his own remarkably, really negative to Jesus' book, Behold the Man, which I am looking currently at two copies of it. It is a brilliant book, and I don't think ultimately it was meant to be anti-Jesus, but it, it more than many other anti-Christian or anti-organized religion books in the genre, Behold the Man is an exception because it goes after Jesus personally. In a way, it connects with the territory of The Traveler by Richard Matheson, which is a little bit... Uh, earlier, but not much, maybe about 10 or 15 years earlier than Behold the Man, where uh, the author encounters Jesus specifically. And In the Eye of Time by Brian Earnshaw does the same in the world of English prep schools, but only uh, Michael Morkak's book is uh, really hostile. And yet he did say that he felt that we all owed the Protestant church a, an enormous um, and decisive debt of gratitude for the ghost story. Well, that theme was picked up perhaps unconsciously by Sir John Betjeman. And John Betjeman said this, this is a direct quote, of the great masters of the English supernatural story, M.R. James is the absolute unquestioned first place. But in second place, and all equally in second place, come Sheridan Le Fanu, Henry James, and H. Russell Wakefield. Now, let's think about that. That's a very strong statement from Betjeman, whose opinion is always very uh, interesting and very worthwhile. And he was writing, as you know, as a conscious Christian, in his case, a uh, an Anglo-Catholic member of the Church of England, but with a very broad sympathy for Calvinists and low churchmen and evangelicals, an ironic and somewhat puckish, even mischievous sympathy for low church people, but a great affection historically for the low church padres. And um, I always look for wonderful low church kind of parodies that are delightful and never with an edge in the believing man's collected poems by Sir John Betjeman. But I think he may have uh, said something that he, he, he may not have known the full ramifications of it, but he probably did because he knew everything, so who am I to say? But Betjeman singled out there four authors, and then I'm going to talk about two others and one final one that say something about fathers and sons. Call him father, call him love, or because let's talk about these um, great um, writers, these great 
um, Bonbrecher, these path waymakers, way showers of the supernatural story. Some of them I've spoken about before, but not all of them. M.R. James was the son of a low church um, evangelical Anglican rector in Suffolk who was a very close friend and co-religionist of John Charles Ryle, who I've just spoken about. And uh, they looked the same. They both cultivated these very long beards, which was for heterosexual reasons. They actually wanted, I mean that very uh, specifically, but without any animus or agenda of any kind. It was ridiculous what they did. They all looked at the later portraits of Cranmer, Archbishop Cranmer, and the other reformers of the 16th century, Protestant reformers, and they noticed these long beards, and these men were at great pains not to be shaven. They wanted to show the world that they were heterosexual and married, non-celibate clergy. They were making a witness, in their view, of what it was to have a married, um, obviously non-celibate, heterosexual clergy, and so they consciously wore beards, and that's stated in some documents that I don't have, but I know it is, and I've read it. Was it John Bale? Someone like that talked about it. And uh, so Ryle intentionally cultivated later in his ministry, not in the early part, but when he became senior and certainly when he became a bishop, a long Cranmerian beard, almost Islamic, if you know about Islamic law today. And his friend, uh, Mr. James, the C.V. Parson, not too many villages away, did the same. And M.R. James, the man whom Betjeman focuses on as the founding father or the greatest, not the founding father, that's not true, the greatest, um, most advanced exponent of the English supernatural story, Montague Rhodes James. He grew up in a low church evangelical rectory, and while he was nowhere near, he didn't, he, wasn't a, he didn't go to the ministry, and he was far more detached. Obviously, his father was a strong and earnest and sincere man, and M.R. James ended up writing many stories that are, take place in cathedral closes, in parishes that feature clergy. Clergy are never taken the mickey out of, except a few high church clergy. M.R. Um, James was, in fact, always sympathetic to, uh, to the low church, even though his father had been fascinating. And when he was provost of Eton, I mean, remember, he he was a Christchurch, Cambridge forever, but then he became provost of Eton, which is a big deal. And he was a major scholar of the apocryphal New Testament. And M.R. James wouldn't let them perform, uh, what is it, the song of Gerontian, because he thought it was too high church. And possibly there were other things that may have occurred to him, but he said it was just a little too high church for the chapel of Eton. Now, isn't that fascinating? Um, Now, so here we have the son of a clergyman, who was brought religious issues and uh, dualisms and good versus evil in church settings, but of a slightly more ecclesiasticist sort of um, context in all his stories. And they are absolutely fabulous, the ghost stories of an antiquary. Now, moving right along, let's go through the list. Henry James, the great American novelist, is an interesting lead here to have also included as one of the great writers of ghost stories. And I've got them here, obviously, turn of the screw. Uh, But um, I'm looking at one right here, which is by, golly, I think I must have the wrong book. But um, he wrote ghost stories. And uh, Henry James' uh, father was, in fact, a lay preacher. Henry James Sr., the father of the Henry James John Betjeman is talking about, the author of Ghost Stories and specifically The Turn of the Screw, Henry James Sr. was a kind of lay evangelist for the Swedenborgian Church. He started out as a kind of New England transcendentalist, was an extremely wealthy man for reasons of inheritance, and gave himself and his life completely to studying 
um, spiritual issues. He went to Princeton Seminary and trained to be a Presbyterian minister, did Henry James, the novelist's father, Henry James Sr. And he dropped out of seminary because he wasn't convinced that Orthodox Christianity held the whole, was the whole vessel. And so he became fascinated by Swedenborg and became finally a writer to his death of uh, a, a totally convinced Swedenborgian pamphleteer and evangelist and kind of a lay minister without portfolio, but giving money to Swedenborgian causes and writing all sorts of voluminous literature on the subject. So Henry James Jr., John Betjeman's number two here, is the son of a uh, Protestant Lutheran offshoot Swedenborgian uh, um, lay minister Henry James Sr., one of the most interesting men to live in early American life, one of the very few uh, really intellectuals of leisure in the early years of the federal period of the American Republic. Now, there are two others. Sheridan Le Fanu, who wrote Carmilla and uh, the Green Tea and uh, the, uh, um, what is it called, the image of the something volant, the, the remarkable ghost stories uh, that he wrote through a glass darkly, which are epical, and a number of others that you'll read. Sheridan Le Fanu, who was really, uh, many people consider, sort of the literary father to M.R. James. Le Fanu also had a low church Protestant clergyman father. His dad was a Church of Ireland clergyman, and in those days in the late 18th century and very early 19th century, uh, to be a Church of Ireland vicar was in almost all cases to be a, what we would call almost today, a violently reformed and anti-Catholic evangelist. And Le Fanu's father, who was a Calvinist, a wonderful man and full of vim and vigor and vinegar, was a clergyman in the um, the southern Ireland, not in the north, the Protestant north, but in the um, Catholic south. And so he had a parish composed of, you know, a great majority of uh, observant Roman Catholic Irish, and yet a small minority of Anglo-Irish or Protestant Irish, of whom he was the vicar. And he believed his life was to be a missionary to the world in which he had planted his church, which was an old uh, C of I parish. And young Sheridan grew up in an intensely clerical home. And Le Fanu, not a clergyman, and a man who many people trace his depressions and all sorts of melancholia to his father, that may or may not be true. That's current hindsight, but it probably is true, and I'll talk about that in a bit. Sheridan Le Fanu, too, the great writer who's now completely in print. You know, the ghost of Madame Crowell, the one who talked about the fairies and the gremlins and the fairies who capture children and take them to underground, you know, Darby O'Gill and the little people type of thing. Um, Sheridan Le Fanu, who then wrote in Ireland and who became a Swedenborgian and whose uh, novel, Uncle Silas, is considered by many to be a Swedenborgian novel, although I've read it, and I, it's a little harder for for me to see the Swedenborgianism in it, or rather, he's such a good writer that he's not writing a Swedenborgian tract like his American cousin, his spiritual cousin, Henry James Sr. Um, Emmanuel, uh, Sheridan Le Fanu uh, wrote wonderful ghost stories, uh, fabulous Gothic stories that are um, all available, and I recommend them highly to you. So there we have number three, M.R. James, the son of a low church Protestant clergyman, um, Henry James, the son of a lay evangelist for the Swedenborgian church, which was not a cult. And uh, in, even in the more extreme sense of that word, his his work would not be considered cultish by most mainline Christians, that is, Swedenborg. And then we've talked about... Um, uh, Sheridan Le Fanu, whose dad we now know about. And let's go to the last, H. Russell Lake Wakefield. Now, Russell Wakefield is one of my particular interests. I've worked him up for years. I love H. 
R. Wakefield, Herbert Russell Wakefield, because I love his story, The 17th Hole at Duncaster, which is the ultimate golfing story. If you want to, if you have friends or if you are a golfer or have friends who are absolutely delighted golfers, get um, the story by H.R. Wakefield, which you can find, called The 17th Hole at Duncaster, about um, a, a terrible spot wedded to ancient Druid sacrifice that happens to be at the newly constructed 17th hole of a um, of a um, what is now a golf course, but was once simply open country in the moors of Norfolk. And that is a story. But then I read all the other, well, a great many, not all, but a number of stories, particularly the story he cometh and he passeth by. And there are all sorts of other dimensions going on in H.R. Wakefield, but this is the thing. H.R. Wakefield wrote some quite lascivious, not obvious lascivious, but lascivious by implication. He's, he, he understands about men and women and men and men and sex and debauchery, but he's writing as an early 20th century refined upper-class man, as it turns out. And uh, his uh, work is fused with a dark, brilliant, gothic, supernatural uh, approach with a little bit of our irony thrown in. And good usually wins over evil, but not always. Um, but certainly evil is malevolent. And he has some funny clergymen who are, generally speaking, a bit of a send-up and of deep atmosphere and great touches. I'm surprised no one has ever filmed He Cometh and He Passeth By, but that may be done at some point. It may be that the BBC has done the 17th hole at Duncaster, but I doubt it. However, what do you know? H. Russell Wakefield was the son of Henry Russell Wakefield, a Church of England parson who became the Bishop of Birmingham. So you have Wakefield, who's obviously someone who knows all about clergymen and uh, the world of the Church of England and Protestant churches. It come to find out his father was Bishop of Birmingham. Now, isn't that extraordinary? Now, they all fall into place. Now, before I finish and talk a little bit about fathers and sons and you and me, because why did these men, why do you think these men... uh, found their expression because they were they were literary men they were artists they were wordsmiths they were very sensitive they were in some cases uh, in my case mr james i would say ran close to genius or at least inspiration henry james i think many people regard as a genius of literature and um the other two wrote very memorable and living and undated eerie and unsettling stories that have never really lost their uh, ability to create disturbance underneath the surface and their under Understanding of the psychic truth of living and a people. Well, let me just mention two others. I've often talked about Algernon Blackwood. You know all about him. His father was a lay preacher and lay elder of the Sandemanian Church, which was not a cult. It was simply a very conservative, somewhat off, very exclusionary Darbyite sect of the Church of Scotland, but no longer part of the Church of Scotland. And then there's Algernon uh, Arthur Machen, whose dad was a very convinced and strong and imperious, but probably a good guy. I just assume he was because his son didn't really fully react. Arthur Machen's father was an Anglo-Catholic, fairly early Anglo-Catholic clergyman in the Church of Wales in Caerleon, now across the river when you go on the you know, after you get to Bristol, keep going, and you'll get to uh, that wonderful castle that was slighted by Cromwell. I always forget the name. I'll remember it. And uh, then you get to Caerleon, and Care went with the great Roman walls and Roman theater and Roman baths and extraordinary Roman finds of the legionary garrison and druids and what not. And before you know it, the 
Welsh mountains. And um, so his father's a clergyman, but he had an affection for evangelicals because he brings evangelical clergy with a bit of tongue-in-cheek who he thought were sort of idiots, but he they, he knew that they were serious and sincere Christians. And he has a wonderful uh, low-church clergyman in one of his stories and uh, several wonderful high churchmen. And he himself went to church and was an observant Anglo-Catholic man, very eccentric. Now, what do we have? Now, I haven't even mentioned. Let me, let me just finish. A.C. Benson. Arthur C. Benson, you've got to get into him, and we'll talk about Edith Wharton another time, and then obviously we can go into the modern era, but I want, I'm not talking about more modern sort of 20th century sort of uh, when, when the, 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 uh, there's, a, there's another theme that comes into it, in my opinion, with H.P. Lovecraft, and that's another very interesting story. But let's finish the list with uh, A.C. Benson. Now, A.C. Benson, and they're now in print. In Wordsworth, uh, the Wordsworth paperbacks. Well, some of the greatest stories of the kind ever written were written by A.C. Benson. And A.C. Benson was the son. Are you ready? Do you like it like this? Are you ready? Are you ready? A.C. Benson was the son of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Bishop Archbishop Benson, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He grew up as the son of the Archbishop of Canterbury. You've probably heard of Map and Lucia. They're different Bensons. They were very literary. They were very smart. As Wiley said, all of these people are the sons of learned Protestant ministers. And as a result, they have the peculiar fate of being the sons of learned Protestant ministers. Now, Catholic priests didn't have sons, at least in principle. They really didn't. I mean, we can say all we want about Scandal. But Catholic priests do not have owned uh, or um, acknowledged children. And uh, uh, Protestant clergy do, often quiverfuls of them, as uh, um, Trollope pointed out. And uh, whether they be awful or not, some of these guys were great, these clergy. And they had these sons, like Philip Wiley, who's another one, and uh, later in America. And these sons become the writers of horror fiction. Now, why is that so? I can talk more. I could I could talk about aspects of Bram Stoker's past. And there's no end of, to this. But uh, I was fascinated that... Um, that Betjeman listed uh, four who were all the children of clergymen, if not lay evangelists, and that um, the other two great ones who are universally regarded as the masters of the genre of that era. What is it about this? Do you know even John Buchan, who had a tremendous interest in the Kirk, I believe his dad was a clergyman. Even he wrote Gothic stories. One amazing one, I think, called, it's, it's called, I have it right here, it's called The Grove at Ash. The Grove of Ashtaroth by John Buchan. Now, what do we know? What do we say? Let me let me give you a little meaning on this and see if you can fit your own father-son experience into it. First, these uh, men all had clerical fathers. They didn't have lame fathers or fathers who weren't present. They had difficult fathers. Now, I'm speaking also to some friends of mine about this who, 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 who we all know who we are. And they did not have fathers who were away all the time, shall we say, they, or who were just sort of somewhere else or were nitwits or who were completely, you know, run by other people or didn't have any real, you know, oomph. These men were all full of... Uh, of uh, the testosterone. They were clergy, but they were strong, assertive, definite, convinced, sincere, of strong individuals who were clergy. Now, little boys cannot uh, deal with this. That is to say, they cannot fight these kinds of people. A little boy cannot fight a father like uh, Sheridan Le Fanu had. Uh, he is going to, generally speaking, in today, video games, in those days, fantasy, and specifically gothic fantasy, because uh, when you are dealing with a very strong father, call him at times the Count Dracula father, you know, 
God damn it, Paul. What kind of, you know, get you. You better. I just, you are just, you know, whether they're drunk fathers or they're strong fathers or they're intellectually apt fathers or they're quick fathers or they're fathers who are enormously to be admired or respected. These are, you can't fight these fathers. You're not going to win any kind of Oedipal contest with these fathers. So you're inevitably, as a young pubescent, prepubescent, I should say, prepubescent child, you're going to retreat into another world. You're going to fight your father battles uh, indirectly. So all these men, in my opinion, and I'm one of them, but not a writer of supernatural fiction, we all fight our battles, but one step removed in mediatorial formats or contexts or stages or theaters or in the cinema. And you fight your battle in supernatural fiction. And you also have to exorcise sometimes these tyrannical fathers. Remember what the, the Brontes, just look at the Brontes, Branwell, um, Charlotte, Anne, and Emily. They all had a remarkable and in some ways a very fine father. Uh, Patrick Bronte was an Irish Church of Ireland, but then Church of England, low church evangelical vicar with very strong convictions and utterly sincere. He he was impossible, but nevertheless, he was not to be um, easily put off because he had very strong and attached convictions. You might even say integrated convictions so far as they went. And you weren't going to fight him. So Branwell goes into alcohol and the funny world that the girls and he created in their little uh, novelettes as 10-year-olds and 9-year-olds. These were brilliant children. Remember, the children of intellectual Protestant clergy. And so you have the Brontes. I haven't even talked about them, but it's the same idea. You have to go into fantasy because Mr. 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 Believes it, really believes it, as opposed to as a dilettante or a lame person or a silly billy or a controlled person or a, uh, you know, there are all sorts of words for this in historic lingo. Uh, whether he, he's not half a man, he, he's he, he's not controlled by your mom, you know. Uh, he's not El Cid after he died. He's not a Walking Dead man. He's a real contender. You're going to have to you're going to have to fight him because you have to fight him. That's the nature of the growing up process. You're going to have to fight him in a mediated and probably a fantasy way. And that accounts, in my opinion, for the fiction, the supernatural fiction. And you're going to have to, in a sense, exercise his sort of impossible and in many ways negative blustery influence because he's he's so strong that in order to you have to break out you have to exercise the 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 hand you have to get out from under the thumb of this man even if he's sincere and loving after his fashion and in his way you have to do it so you you do you you exercise in terms of stories like the lair of the white worm by bram stoker and he's a separate case but a relevant case a lot of religion in bram stoker a lot and uh, much of it very positive towards Christianity, but nonetheless. But in all these writers, there is an exorcising of an impossible or difficult or malevolent male father, sometimes a female figure as well, that occurs, and there is the need to do it elsewhere. Um, uh, that is to say, in a mediated way. Now, I owe Mary, by the way, a bit of uh, the, the, the whole question of the, the need to, to escape, because you, you're going to lose if you fight your actual father. Paul, whoever it is, whoever your actual father is, if he's a strong character like these clergy, you know, we have to hear him each Sunday in the pulpit, and you're always talking about these issues at the dinner table, and your mother is often scared out of her wits by this strong, impossible man. You're going to have to, uh, everybody's a little scared of him. You're going to be scared, so you're going to retreat there and fantasy. And Mary made that connection so wonderfully. I said, oh, Mary, boy, I'm, I'm upset. A, you've, uh, you know, there's several levels on which that skewering works, but she's dead right. And secondly, you're going to usually have 
to do it through father figures. Wouldn't it be nice to quote the Beach Boys? And someone said recently, and I think it was our son David, he said that the Beach Boys were the high point of Protestant popular art in the 20th century in America. And I thought, you know, that's true. I mean, they're certainly the high point of, of, of something. They're certainly Protestant. And there's certainly popular art, and they certainly were in America. And I think that's probably true. I can see why, given a lot of their music and some of their gravitations, especially Brian Wilson, it would be absolutely right for him to say this is the high point of Protestant art. Well, anyway, um, I've told you about these people and how they all come out. They were all the sons of Protestant strong personality clergymen who, therefore, the sons had to escape into fantasy and also had to sort of undo through exorcism literarily the impossible fathers whom they had growing up. Well, that is the podcast. And, of course, not of course, I would say that the whole point of this is ultimately to reconcile oneself with the father. The father who may be strong, he may be misguided, he may not know, he didn't know, he oh, Jippo... He did. Chippo, you didn't know what you were doing. You know, the line in the informer. Men like that, they don't know what they're doing. They think they're doing right. And um, hopefully maybe they'll find out at some point that they were doing wrong. Maybe they could, in fact. And maybe at some level they were. And sometimes they actually are able to be the hero of the Winstons. Fabulous, fabulous song, which I now commend to you. Thanks so very much and God bless. Now the man at my house is so big and strong. He goes to work each day and he stays all day long. He comes home each night looking tired and beat. He sits down at the dinner table and has a bite to eat. Never a frown, always a smile. When he says to me, how's my child? I said that I've been studying hard all day in school. Trying very hard to understand the golden rule. I think I'll follow this man father. I think I'll color him love. Education is the thing if you want to compete Because without it, son, life ain't very sweet I love this man and I don't know why Except I'll need his strength until the day that I die My mother loves him and I can tell By the way she looks at him when he holds my little sister Nell I heard her say just the other day that if it hadn't have been for him, she couldn't have found her way. I think I'll call him father. I'm gonna call him love. I've got to call him father. I think I'll call this man love. Our real old man, he got killed in the war. And she knows she and seven kids couldn't have gotten very far. She says she thought that she could never love again. And then there he stood with that big wide grin. He married my
took us in And now we belong to the man With that big wide grin I've got to color this man father I'm gonna color him love 